This is a Media Lab podcast. Hey Dave, when's the last time you ever gave someone a diamond? Diamond? Uh, I think I bought Helen one when Emerson was born. I don't think oh. this shouldn't be on record because I totally forgot why. <laughs> she will very quickly fact check us here. I'm sure yeah. if she listen, if my wife listened to this podcast, she would. But she doesn't. Are you so. sure she's not into listening about a movie that's 50 years old featuring James Jamothy Bond? <laughs> uh, you, what did you propose with then? You didn't have a diamond on the ring when you proposed? I did not propose. Would you like to hear that story? <laughs> Let me get settled in here one second. I'm going to crack this open is, this coke. This is All right, a, go. This is a source of great bitterness with Helen. I, as some maybe guest, used to be uh, very like a sot. I think that was the technical term, a sot. And uh, we had been together for nearly 10 years and we were at a party and I was uh, nearly blackout drunk and we were out having a cigarette and she uh, said something. So romantic. Oh, yeah. I, I obviously don't remember exactly how this goes, but I think she brought up that one of our friends was getting married, uh, not in a leading way. We, I think we were invited to mm -hmm. the wedding. And then I said some kind of trap where I was trying to get her to say like, you know, like, what, what, what do you think they said? And as soon as she said, mm -hmm. uh, you know, do you think we should get married? I ran into the party and started yelling at everybody that we got engaged. <laughs> <laughs> and she was so pissed. Wow. And I haven't, uh, I haven't dealt with that until I uh, sobered up. And now I get to mm. pay the price of being an asshole. Yeah, it's great. Maybe for your like 25th wedding anniversary that's what you do you finally get down on one knee if you can anymore you are getting pretty old so get down on that one knee and and you you ask for her hand in marriage like a real gentleman dave you know we were supposed to we were going to do one of those weddings you know when you go back mm -hmm. and do it again but you know covid came so we were at a glamp site at the sunshine how, village wait, how long is that going to be a, a, an excuse that people can be it's like well i was gonna get you a present but you know covid no, <laughs> sorry we couldn't, were, do, we it. couldn't do it i mean we ran out of money because we both left our jobs but because uh, covid the, yeah no, no leading up okay. but the concept okay. <laughs> the concept was that at our 10 like 20 year anniversary we would go to like fucking hawaii or something and then leading up, we're like, well, Hawaii might be too far, but we'll go somewhere fun. And then COVID hit, we're like, let's go uh, to Sunshine Campsite for a night with Emerson. That turned out fine. It's good. You don't need rings. You don't need diamonds. James Bond's yeah, wrong. I mean, I guess this is a bad time to bring this up, but at our last stop that we did when we had to get like the uh, the, the fuel for the ship, I, I, I actually just took all these diamonds. Oh. Where did you get it? In I know, a box? Our, for, yeah, no, no. From the deep and rich fiction that oh, we've been yeah, creating yeah. here. Right. This world that we that we live in. It was, I don't know, some some rando. They, they just had a bag full of them. So, I was like, he's not going to miss these. No. And so, I just scooped them up. Yeah. So, you know. I'm sure that, I'm sure this plot line <laughs> will never resurface again. But, but for a glimmer of time, it's going to feel like it's going to be relevant. Yeah. Much like the movie we're going to be talking about here today, Dave. Yeah, we should talk about what the uh, melting temperature of uh, diamonds are. Also, fun fact, uh, which I have always had a problem with, like everything else, their value is bullshit, but now we can manufacture them. So, who gives a shit? Yay. Yay. Just like love. On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. 
If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not gonna face an apocalypse alone. Especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. My name is Kyle. And I am... Dave. And I'm the machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. Somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. So now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films and ask us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film Diamonds Are Forever. Diamonds are forever. How's this for kicks? He's back in action in a new Bond Spectacular. action big thank you of course to our patrons green girl yyc and it's a conspiracy podcast uh dave you know we're about to get into our second bond film that we've discussed on this show and i thought why not bring back the guest that we had last time so let me just get on the old phone here kyle are you there i'm here i'm here Oh, perfect. You know, Kyle Turner, of course, uh, I know you as being one of my favorite Twitter follows, a, a great critic in your own right. I mean, the two I, I do really want to mention is like your piece about the real Housewives of New York that can be found on Mike.com, the piece about Woman in the Window that you wrote for GQ. And of course, you are a co-host of Lasagna Time with Billy and Kyle. So thank you so much for joining us here again. Thank you so much for having me. Always have such a good time. Glad to be mm -hmm. back. Thank you. I'm going to get Dave not to yell at you this time, so I'm going <laughs> to How are you going to do that? <laughs> this is the internet. We'll I'm allowed to do whatever I want. But the sparring is what makes it fun. You know, age around right. Asian crime. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we can hate each other, Kyle. You, you're yeah. excluded. Yeah, you're gotcha. excluded. Or we can team up against other Kyle. Hey, that'd be fun. I think it's about time. Yeah. Asian colonial. No, we won't. <laughs> has a rich history too. Who wants to plan a revolution? We, of course, are talking about Diamonds Are Forever, the last time Sean Connery appeared as James Bond in an official James Bond film, let's put it that way. Uh, I think where we need to start, we did this kind of the last time, Kyle, you were a guest, but I do want to do a brief like history with Bond as a franchise, but then specifically your relationship with like Sean Connery as mm. James Bond. So I'll get you to start. Um, well, I, I've loved James Bond uh, since I was seven. My babysitters let me play the N64 Goldeneye game. Even though, like, technically, I think Pierce Brosnan, vis-a-vis -vis that game, was my quote-unquote first Bond, my f actual first Bond would have been Sean Connery because I begged my mother to 
by Dr. No on DVD for me. I think there was really no going back from there. I became really fascinated and obsessed with not only the sort of in-universe factoids of different characters and their relationships to to um, different secret agencies and whatnot, international espionage, um, and the gadgets and the cars and what uh, and such. Um, but I also became really interested in James Bond's place in like a broader cultural history and a broader like cinematic history, specifically with regards to the way in which the films have always been reactionary or responsive to the culture at large, whether it is responding to them via politics or by via like social atmosphere. Um, I think what's really interesting about the Bond films, more to me, more so than a lot of other large franchises, is that in order for them to retain some sort of relevancy, they have to have like a, a seed of truth that they're responding to. Um, whether um, it's the Cold War, obviously, but like more specifically certain geopolitical relationships between the United States and Russia or um, the United States and, and Hong Kong, um, as in like Tomorrow Never Dies, uh, or or the changing nature of espionage itself, as we see in the last couple of decades in the Bond films, um, in mm-hmm. both in terms of technology and in terms of like on the ground field agents, which I think is like the central premise of Spectre. As far as Connery goes, like he is sort of, he was for me like very much emblematic of what James Bond was supposed to be as far as his relationship to masculinity and masculinity as represent representative of national identity. Mm. Um and so his brute, unforgiving, but also sort of droll, quippy nature, I thought was not something that I personally wanted to aspire to, aspire to, but like definitely like illustrated what kind of man was able to hold that kind of power, which I thought, which I was um, really fascinated with, especially in terms of how it was sold to people. Like, mm-hmm. not only do you have the movies and the books, obviously preceding them, and the and the films being loose adaptations, but in much like the Don Draper Mad Men thing. James Bond is both like a fantasy and also implicitly a critique, I think. Mm. Um, I don't think that there is a unilateral admiration for what James Bond does. And I think as the films go on, it becomes increasingly more self-aware as far as the behavior that he shows. That it is at times dubious and and so much of the franchise has Bond like going uh, going rogue, basically. Um, challenging or um, disobeying certain practices. And for Sean Connery, because of the sort of violent streak, both in, both in the text of the films, but also in his personal life, I think that I think it, it sort of sets a blueprint for, or I think should have, in terms of the way that we should engage with James Bond, sets a blueprint for a much more ambivalent relationship to that character and its cultural legacy. Yeah, something that I took upon myself here this past uh, few weeks is that I just rewatched all of the Sean Connery Bonds specifically um, and ran at a time. I was actually going to try and do the Lazenby one too, but I just didn't have time. And it is wild to see a movie series that starts in 1962 and now we're up to 1971 and how much of a difference <laughs> nine years makes in filming. 
not just in like style, but also the actual character seems a little bit different. Uh, yes, noticeably older and all that kind of stuff too. But it, you, you do feel like as the series progressed, we're getting to the 70s. Other films are trying to be a little bit more avant-garde. And they're like, uh, we can't just do the same thing over and over. We have to get a little bit more edge to this character. I mean, what's also interesting is I think you see this in the film that we're going to talk about, Diamonds Are Forever, as far as the way it frames his behavior or at least a certain kind of discontinuity because I rewatched it uh, to prepare for this. What the kind of physical altercations that Bond would get in with like women um, mm. that were, I think, more person permissible or more excused in something like um, Goldfinger in 1964. There's a different tone, I think, with the camera work and the actual formal language of the film, when you see something similar at the very beginning of Diamonds Are Forever, it's just like you have Sean Connery who is like visibly older and mm -hmm. aesthetically signifying like a different generation, basically, like and an, oh, almost yeah. an entire decade has changed, both in terms of like the the physicality of who Sean Connery is, but also in the sort of um, cultural climate surrounding this film. I mean, we are we have past the summer of love and we're entering into the 70s and this functions as this very weird bridge although james Bond would like never necessarily be embraced by second wave feminists by any means it, they were actually quite um an object of ire to second wave feminists you can see the film kind of pressing up against an emerging ethos mm -hmm. and that awkwardness and that kind of discontinuity there yeah, I can't wait to get into this a little bit more because I have there's a lot of like um, uh, comparisons I want to make to some other films that we've watched this this year already in 1971, because this does feel both like, oh, it's Bond trying to evolve. And yet it still feels a little bit dated. And that's the thing about James Bond. It's always a little bit behind the curve. I find it's never really ahead of the curve as far as the culture goes. But Dave, what do you think about uh, Bond in general and Sean Connery specifically? I grew up in the 80s and Bond on TV was Roger Moore. So my first Bond is Roger Moore. Uh, so it's kind of a cartoon Bond. When Pierce Brosnan came in, well, I mean, we had Timothy Dalton and there's a lot of controversy. Con controversy. There's a lot of controversy there just because there's such a big tone change. Um, mm -hmm. And I think. And I am on record as saying I am pro Timothy Dalton. Yeah. <laughs> as just, am I. Timothy yeah. Dalton is the proto Daniel Craig. Yeah. I think yeah. they just weren't ready for him. Yeah. I think history. Yeah. That's right. I think history is looking back now and saying, you know what? Maybe we needed. That was the bond we needed, even though mm -hmm. it wasn't the one we wanted at the time. And it was such a big swing, you know, because Roger yeah. Moore is a cartoon character. This show is hosted by two cartoon characters. And then I was really excited for Pierce Brosnan because uh, Remington Steele, he's just got that debonair, you know, thing but as we discussed last year uh the movies didn't turn out the way i thought they might um and then i came back to sean connery so you i think everybody knows sean connery is the uh, uh the first bond but especially in the early 90s it's not that easy to find old films you know unless mm -hmm. you're uh at the blockbuster digging through old tapes so i personally didn't really dig uh, I, I think i watched dr no and goldfinger mm -hmm. from russia with love like in my late teens, early 20s, just never really got around uh, to watching these films. Um, anyways, Sean Connery, I love. 
just because, you know, he was in The Highlander, which is one of the greatest films ever made. <laughs> and uh, he's just, you know, he's ultra masculine. He's just a weird dude. So, a lot of movies that he's made, I've grown up watching. Um, whether I like him as a person, it has never... He's like, we talked to ad, ad nauseum last week, Kyle, uh, about... Two weeks ago, technically. Uh, two weeks ago, about the nature of celebrity and how, you know, in that era, uh, people were larger than life. They transcended films. They transcended roles. Mm -hmm. And Kyle, uh, Kyle Marshall brought up the hypothesis that era is gone. I don't know if that's entirely true, but... Um, Sean Connery is another one of these guys that no matter what he's in, he's Sean Connery. He was a better example yeah. than the one I was trying to give because <laughs> I was struggling to come up on the fly of like a, a good example. But like Sean Connery is a great example of like a movie star. Like I don't yeah, think he's absolutely. necessarily like a great actor, but like he has presence. Like you want to watch right. him. He's a movie star, right? Yeah. I agree for the most part that movie stars don't really exist anymore. Or at least it is very hard to come up with right. an example of a movie star that was created after th 2008. Oh, wow. After sort of Marvel established itself I, as, right. um, uh, or ushered in like this idea that IP is now right. the movie star. Brands or IP are what are selling yeah. things, not the stars mm. that are in them. Yeah. Right. I think, and movie stars have never necessarily had to be like good actors. They've only, they've only had to have like essences that are alluring mm -hmm. to the public. Uh, this is a thought I had. Um, I don't know if I said it a lot when we talked about the last. Uh, two weeks ago. I wonder if there's a a time period and if we revisit this in 15 years, if we'll move that number because you said 2008, to me, that's like yesterday. <laughs> so, like people well, who are emerging after 2008 are children. I mean, Sean Connery didn't become mm -hmm. Sean Connery until he had 10 or 15 years in the movie business. So, I, we'll see. The only, like who's before 2000, I, I have no idea. It's hard to put an age on it. But anyways, that's it's interesting that um, you're right, the, the commercial nature of films has changed quite a bit, but at the same time, we have, uh, there are people that make good movies. It's hard, it's hard oh, to- Oh, it has nothing to do with good or bad movies. It's just the, <laughs> the actual idea of stardom is, is very different nowadays. Yeah. Um, before we get down uh, that road again, because <laughs> that was like a 30 minute yelling match but, that we went through last time, but- That's such a good debate. Because yeah. like, it's funny you should mention that. I'm, this will be the last thing that I, they, that I say on the topic. Um, uh, don't want to derail y'all. Um, but like, I just read Myra Breckenridge by Gore Vidal, mm -hmm. which was published in 1968. And then the film version came out in 1970 with Raquel Welch, who was almost a movie star. Um, and there's this whole section where Myra is meeting the agent Letitia Wright, I believe. And she's played by Mae West in the film. And they're talking about the nature of movie stardom and that there are these specific granular archetypes that these different movie stars fall into but that the overarching idea is that they are all gods and that hollywood is mount olympus and that the appeal of movie stardom is that they aren't like us mm -hmm. but because now that social media has democratized fame in such a dramatic way um those myths can't be created in the same way and those gods can't be created in the same way if everyone is trying to be a god if everyone's trying to create their own mythology, then there is no sort of um, singularity aspect or, or a singular aspect of these aspirational celebrities. Yeah. I mean, the fracturing is just so much now that I, I would say that anyone that's younger than me is, is much more influenced by, say, uh, YouTube, uh, TikTok, other streaming platforms and that kind of thing. Uh, like, those are the people Living? that... 
yeah, Quibi, of course. Yes, the great Quibi, uh, R.I.P. I think those are the the the, like the Mount Olympus people now in in a great in in culture a lot of the times, where uh, yeah, that kind of movie stardom is kind of falling by the wayside. Um, I don't think movies are as integral to the culture anymore as they once were, and that's that's kind of a my opinion though. Congratulations, you've never been less relevant. So to that point, to answer the question that I posed here at the beginning, Sean Connery really was my first Bond because they did this thing on the CPC for like six Sundays one one summer where they played every James Bond film back to back. And so that's how I kind of was introduced to the character. I'd heard of the character, obviously, but that was like my first introduction to it. And talking about like that movie presence and that stardom, like there was just something about Sean Connery, like, oh, like this guy is cool. Like I, I again, it's one of the things you said, Kel, like, I don't know if I, it was that I wanted to be him, but I definitely was like, oh, it's kind of, it's just, I want to see what he does. And doing the revisit over the last week, there is that element there. I don't think all of the Sean Connery movies work for me anymore, but he always does <laughs> for, for whatever reason. It's like, yeah, like I believe what you're doing in, in this scene or it's like, like there's actually a scene in this movie in diamonds are forever where he drives a moon buggy. Awesome. And I, the weirdest thing about it is that the moon buggy itself looks so goofy and yet Sean Connery doesn't. And it's like, what? I don't know how this is happening. Like, I don't see him Fanboy. being like, no, maybe, yeah, but we'll I just, I don't see a second. <laughs> okay. But I just, uh, the, the, the scene itself might be, but he still looks like, yeah. Okay. I, I believe you. you're driving a moon buggy. He is, is one of my favorites. Like I am again, gone on record. I have kind of, I don't know if they're controversial opinions, but I have very strong opinions on that. I'm not a huge fan of the uh, Roger Moore films very much at all. Um, there's a couple of exceptions, but by and large, I don't like most of them. Uh, and even in the Sean Connery ones, I find like my most controversial opinion there is I think Thunderball is a bad movie. <laughs> no, that's correct. <laughs> yeah. Thunderball is awful. I did like a, a rewatch of most of them last year. Thunderball is unbear- unbearable. It's There's like, like 30 minutes of underwater footage that just goes on and I on know. and on. Um, but it's like the one that's highest rated. If you go to any aggregate site, it's the one that's highest rated. I, and I don't get I don't it. understand. <laughs> I'm kind of wondering, like, because even though. The Bond films were um, produced by United Artists. I am kind of curious that because these were sort of journeyman movies as far as the kinds of directors that they hired, right. um, the, its place within the British film industry, etc. Like, what was going on with the editing? Because the editing mm. in especially something like Thunderball is not necessarily comparable to anything that was happening, kind of like emerging right. sort of of the... <laughs> Uh, from the ashes of like studio Hollywood in the early 1960s and then entering into like the new American wave in the late 60s, early 70s. The editing and pace of many of the 60s Bond films are so different from like oh, contemporary yeah. action. I, other I, contemporary I agree with that. Films. Like you, I, th- I think British films are, have always been a little bit different. Like I have a big love affair of the uh, hammer horror films of like the mm-hmm. 50s and 60s. And they are very different than like horror films that are being made <laughs> in Hollywood yeah. at the time. There's just a different feel, look, style to them. I mean, we've seen in 1971, we saw it in 1999, you know, the way in which other cultures approach film is so fundamentally different. It's coded in a different language. Inherently, they seem boring or like French movies seem too gritty and depressing or German movies seem too either avant-garde or very strong. You know, there's something because it doesn't code in our sort of Hollywood language. 
Um, mm. But I agree with you. I mean, this is the first movie apparently that was co-written for an American audience and you kind of see it trying to be that. Yeah. But where it fails is where they can't get those two things working together because there are vast mm. parts of this film that are uh, a slog. But uh, oh right. yeah, but we'll talk yeah. about it. Well, let's do this then. Let uh, me and Dave are going to go thank some sponsors, and then when we return, we'll get way more into detail about Diamonds Are Forever. Do you think they actually faked the moon landing, Dave? Well, obviously. I mean, uh, I think what they would, obviously, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, all you need is uh, several B-level actors in suits walking very slowly i do i do have to say like neil armstrong awful actor didn't appear in anything else no i, after I, the moon I was landing, like so. looking at his cre- credits and there's just nothing on his filmography it's like a one-hit wonder mm-hmm. awful i mean we are here of course to tell you that kyle and dave versus the machine is a proud member of the alberta podcast network locally grown community supported the alberta podcast network promotes and supports alberta made podcasts and connects their audiences with alberta-based businesses and organizations uh this week i get to tell you a little bit about the future of podcasts this is from atb it's hosted by todd hirsch atb financials vice president and chief economist the future of podcasts has launched its second season by connecting with industry leaders to uncover what's on the horizon for the things that mean the most to you. Again, the raw you, not you, David Yen. But the future of podcasts promises to give you insights to help navigate what is often an uncertain future. Explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunities it creates. Subscribe to the future of in the Apple Store, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found and connect with us at atb.com slash the future of. Dave, what do you have for me this week? I'm just uh, trying to figure if anybody's trying to break into our ship because all I hear is the monotony of someone cutting concrete by my window. Do you think these diamonds I stole have anything to do with it? I don't know, but here's a cadaver. I think we need to stash these things. Who did you kill? (laughs) Uh, James Bond. I have something here from Park Power, friendly local utilities provider in Alberta. They offer internet, electricity, natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. That's nice. We should apply to be a local charity. (laughs) I was going to (laughs) say donate, but we have nothing to donate. Uh, Let's take a look. Oh, how about this? Park Power is owned by Chris Kozowski, who has a growing and well-deserved reputation for being a guy who cares. If you're in the Edmonton area, you may have seen him around town in his signature bow tie supporting local causes and boosting local business. He walks that talk with his business. Is that right? Yeah. He walks Mm -hmm. that talk with his business. It's why Park Power shares its profits with local charities. As a new customer, you can choose a community partner to receive 10% of the proceeds from your electricity bill. Like the CKUA radio network. Visit parkpower.ca slash CKUA to find out more. Just HTTPS colon slash slash www dot p a r k should we keep going just like an an overall critique kyle where do you stand on diamonds are forever it's one of my least favorite bond films i think it is mostly quite boring especially like the the back half of the film is Mm. a slog and i i had actually rewatched diamonds are forever last year pre-pandemic and nearly fell asleep you're watching it and 
rewatching it now, I don't, I, I have found more interesting things about it, but I still find it very frustrating because of its contrivances as far as tone and its attempt to be like a bit more American. Um, it's uh, sort of discrepancy um, in terms of aspiring to be the grand return of Sean Connery mm-hmm. um, and then being boring. Boy, I'm going to get into some hot water here, I think, because I'm probably going to be the most positive on this film of the three people on this podcast. Um, and I'm not like super positive. Like this is not one of my favorite bonds either. But uh, I think that both it's like best and worst thing going against it is the return of Sean Connery. Like, okay, cool. It's Sean Connery back. But it's like you're really leaning into the fact that you have Sean Connery back without really having a great story to support him with. But before I get into my specifics, Dave, what do you think about Diamonds Are Forever? Ah, well, uh, it's funny to use the word story as though there were one. I like the way Kyle put it. There, I was thinking the same thing. There are, it, there are like three missed opportunities to make different films smushed into this one thing with, you know, mm. glued together with some of the worst, like the car chase scene is probably the worst shot in the history of action films. It's, in my opinion, was awful. I mean, this is, it's unfair to compare, but we watched French Connection this year and, uh, you know, it's a joke. Yeah, I mean, comparing those two car chases like, uh, like night and day, it's I agree joke. with that. So, for example, the opening sequence, I thought was kind of fun and I was kind of like, okay, this might be okay. And then I thought it was an hour and a half that passed. Apparently, it's only 30 minutes and I was uh, you like texting me, I pressed pause and I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do for another hour? Um, there's a great reveal with uh, Blofeld's back. You're like, oh, this might turn to something because we need a doomsday device. And then all of a sudden, this I don't know. It's just uh, awful. The other thing that I kind of am too sensitive about is the is kind of like that brutal undertone of racism. Like we have a a black woman who turns into a gorilla. Like that shit is yeah. fucking weird, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, that is a rock. Yeah, it's hard to get over, right? Like uh, mm. I want to be like, oh, well. If I'm a white dude in 1971 in a theater, would I even notice? Like, I think so. You know, that's it's just a weird, hmm. it's a weird thing to throw in a casino. I don't, I don't know. I wasn't in Vegas in the 70s. But. And there's also the irony of the next film being Live and Let Die, which like heavily borrows from black exploitation. Oh yeah, it's like the Shaft uh, yeah. film of the franchise. Yeah. So yeah, and then um, it's a weird movie. Nothing makes sense, uh, but we do learn. That the moon landing was fake. So right. there's some data. <laughs> See, yeah. I mean, honestly, for me, this movie is kind of a mixed bag throughout the entire thing. And again, I think because in such short succession, I rewatched all of the uh, Connery Bonds in a row, I kind of had to look at it in comparison to those movies. So Thunderball, which I just straight up do not like. And then it, that's followed up by You Only Live Twice, which I think. There's some fun things, but ultimately, I also don't really like that movie. Oh, I, th- I love that one. Okay. So, but I think that this is at least better than those two slightly, like not by a long, long shot. So, for me, this is like middle of the road Bond. Like, this is the poster child for like, it does this stuff good and this stuff I'm bored with and this stuff I don't know what the heck is going on. But I don't think this is one of like, 
<laughs> the absolute worst Bond films that has ever been made. I think that there are some that are far, far worse. You are the one who brought up, Dave, how Roger Moore is kind of like the cartoon Bond, which I would agree with for the most part. I might have even said this in our last episode, too. But the, the difference, and it's, and it's a very slight one, I agree with. But I've always felt like the biggest difference between Moore and Connery is that Connery plays the character as a spy first and a playboy second, whereas Moore plays it as a playboy first and a spy second. The physicality that Connery brings to the role is something that I find more engaging to watch. And I feel like he's able to give those comedic moments the the beats that they need like i love him pretending to be the scientist and going in and, and looking around and doing the inspections i think that stuff works except that he's six foot two you sure. know he looks like he's chiseled <laughs> and he's walking around pretending to be a like a stupid but anyways continue yeah. <laughs> i mean i mean james bond is i mean then you have to dis disagree with basically every bond film where he pretends to be something that he actually isn't i'm shrugging i don't know if you can hear me shrug but maybe, uh... maybe you just don't like james <laughs> bond dave maybe that's the issue the one aspect i really want to bring up here before we go into some backstory is how do you both feel about the two very obviously supposed to be homosexual characters that are in this movie and i always forget it's mr kit and mr something Mr. Winton, Mr. Kidd. Mr. Winton, Mr. Kidd. Where do we fall on these characters? How about you, Kyle? Uh, I'm so sad that they're ugly. <laughs> if we're going to have representation, if we're going to have mediocre gay villain representation, let them at least be like kind of hot. There was a long period of time where I had not rewatched the film since I was maybe in high school or something, even though like I, I had it lodged back in, in the back of my mind as the Bond film that had gay-coded villains right. in it. And that was just, that was there. Like, I was aware of it in my childhood. It was one of, it was a, a trivia, something that was a, present in the film, but I had no a particular relationship to it. And then after I came out, I didn't bother rewatching it until, like, last year. Right. And I was massively disappointed by um, not... It, the, it being like bad representation or anything, but by it being boring representation. Um, I, I wish they were more diabolical and uh, more fun. Um, and I wish they had maybe a little bit more screen time to have that aspect um, fleshed out a little bit. And I mean, I sort of enjoyed their uh, play with a scorpion um, and their attempt to kebab uh, bond at mm -hmm. the end. Uh, but mostly they're, they don't seem to be like very active French people. And what's always been kind of odd about the Bond franchise is, uh, there is a way in which I think, especially post odd job in Goldfinger and in between Jaws, a desire to inflate the role of the hench person or yeah. the henchman in the Bond films when they don't often have the same sort of set pieces that those two are given. So I wish there were more. And also a different, and what was an interesting um, juxtaposition to me was you have Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd, um, very clearly gay and like kind of homely looking, very atypical of, I think, a cultural imagination of what gay men looked like um, in the 70s and late 60s, kind of coming, even coming out of like the boys in the band, which was both pre-post Stonewall gay art. Um, and then you have Bambi and Thumper, who are also like coded as lesbians, 
because they are both coded as lesbians and also must fit within the archetype of Bond women, they are much more attractive and, and sort of engineered for like the hetero male gaze that is ostensibly seeing this film. To be honest, I could completely forgotten since the last time I watched that these two characters were even in this movie. Like as soon as they came, I'm like, oh right, this is the movie that has like these two weird characters that don't really impact a lot of the plot, but they keep kind of coming back. And I agree. I feel like they're this this missed opportunity. Even though I like the one, the um the non-mustachioed yeah, one. The perfect. It's like yeah. I think he's doing something kind of like he's almost playing like a serial killer, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, well, that would be kind of interesting. But then you're given no screen time to really develop that character very right. much. Uh, Dave, do you have any strong opinions? Dave never has any strong opinions. You should know that by now. I mean, I've never read any of these books. And I wonder if, for example, in the book treatment of these types of characters, if they would be, I mean, nobody has a backstory if you're sort of a henchman. But a little bit more uh, for them to do and, and maybe the studio rolls back how much they want to be seen by a hetero male uh, audience. Because well, yeah, I, there's Kyle, much- correct me if I'm wrong, like past whether the second, I think Goldfinger, I think they're all completely made up plots. Like they share the name, but they don't actually have anything to do with the books. They are extremely loose adaptations. Yeah. Um, I, there is, I think, at least in the Connery at least as far as majority of the existing books that were being adapted, they diverge um, quite greatly, but there are often like elements of the books that mm-hmm. are in them. Like Goldfinger is mostly faithful. Um, you only live twice is like partially faithful and it was adapted by Roald Dahl. Yeah. Um, there are parts of diamonds are forever, which are in the book, like Tiffany case and the, the diamond smuggling stuff is a part and also the real estate stuff is also part of the original novel. Hmm. But it is, it's like taking 10 pages of the book and then extrapolating from there. But when, and Wint and Kid are in the book. By they the are? Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it felt like, yeah, putting this guy who looks like he's in Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Uh, he's awful. He's not a good actor. He, he, he really, the whole thing just feels brought down by him the other guy's weird enough that i would believe him to be some kind of serial killer who goes out and murders i don't even understand why they're murdering everybody with the diamonds i guess to cover it, it that's, they're covering their tracks yeah, it doesn't yeah. really make a lot of sense the way they put that in uh, for me the two ninja women guarding like that whole storyline didn't make any sense why they're even in this mansion and what this guy's doing there but I didn't actually pick up on them having a relationship. I thought I just thought they were just Bond girls that are thrown there in bikinis to beat the shit out of him and then for him to dominate at some point, um, which is <laughs> a Bond trope uh, at this point right. anyways. Uh, but it, I mean, it's not explicitly said or anything, but it is like very heavily implied. Yeah, no, I, I like that. I, and uh, I, it's definitely not disagreeing with you. I think it is just something that... I, maybe at that, at that point, I was half asleep. I don't know, but... Um, I do like I I get it I do like that they kicked his ass uh, which is nice Um, it is cheesy how they lead in with all the bullshit acrobatics that are in that casino but it's neat Mm -hmm. to watch them kind of uh, like two up one up him at least for a good three or four minutes which um, you get tired of this idea that these uh, heroes are superheroes and they can they're impervious I don't like that he just suddenly drowns them in a pool, but you gotta you gotta fix that scene at the end somehow for him to win. Um, 
Well, well, I mean, that's kind of my biggest criticism, to be honest, is that it seems like every action scene, it like ramps up and then is basically solved with like, we're done with this and we're now we're going to go to the next scene. Yeah. Because even like the casket scene, it's like, okay, cool. Like, how is he going to get so out of this dumb. one? So dumb. How is he going to get out of this one? It's like, he's burning alive. Oh my God. And then it's like, oh, he's just out and <laughs> great lighting. <laughs> they just pull him out and he's, and he's fine and there's no smoke. And I guess we're on our, on our way with the rest of the plot. Like, you know, the elevator fight scene, it could be, that's basically a Daniel Craig sort of moment. Um, mm-hmm. It's really gritty. It's reasonably well shot for the early 70s. But then in the end, it just, I don't know, like you said, they hit this switch and then they're like, all right, you know what? We've been fighting too long. Let's just throw him over this handrail. I thought he was going to go down to the basement and it's like one floor. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't be dead. You know, that's just not yeah. how physics work and the human but, body. By the so way, it's there is weird. also... One of my favorite lines, honestly, is in this movie, which is when they throw the girl off, oh, off the balcony. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I didn't know there was a pool down there. I, what were those guys? Like, are they the mob? I they truly... never really explain it, I don't think. Yeah. I, I, like, literally watched it yesterday, and I couldn't <laughs> tell you. It's so weird, right? Who did they work for? Did they work for uh, the woman? Did they work for... Wait, I... Th- I think they worked for uh, Willard White. Yeah. So I, I think the 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 whole idea. Okay, I'm going to try to explain this, and I, I'm probably going to do a terrible um, job. You're going to reveal how much you misunderstood being the reason. Oh, you probably. Like this movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, no. Like, I like this is this. Is, someone can write in and tell me like you're completely wrong. The whole thing is that the young obviously supposed to be inspired by Howard's Hugh, Howard Hughes guy, basically kidnapped, put on ice, whatever it happens to be. Blofeld is pretending to be him. So he is now controlling everyone who works or used to work for the white character. And everyone is covering each other's tracks. And that's what those two assassins are going and doing, right? They're killing the school teacher. They're blowing up the helicopter. They're doing all this to cover everyone's tracks to like be like, okay, throwing everyone off the scent so that Blofeld can create the little laser thing that's going to take out different areas. It doesn't really make sense. I'm not going to say that it makes sense, but I think that that's what the idea is behind everything. Well, I mean, that's the string line plot, <laughs> the thread. 100%. But yeah, yeah, yeah. like this, these uh, guys in hats that pick them up, like they pick them up at the airport and then they- It's basically like, oh, I guess the Blues slang. Brothers are in this film. Yeah, yeah. it's weird. <laughs> it's a lot of really poor decisions. It was, Ironically, it's when they land in America, this American writing team fucks the whole movie up because that's the point at which things really stop making sense. You know, the the build up there in Europe feels like a, not a Bond movie, but like a, I don't know, like a heist movie or something. There's mm. there's a build with diamonds and you're like, all right, it's kind of boring. Well, but yeah. uh, One thing that we also don't really have context, you and me, Dave, is that since 1962, there had been so many ripoffs of the James Bond formula by this point that I was reading some like contemporary reviews of this movie, kind of saying the same things. Like this feels like someone trying to emulate what James Bond is, but it is a James Bond film itself, which is something they was trying to escape. I feel over like the next decade, <laughs> like, well, what is a James Bond movie in a world where anyone can make a James Bond movie? Just not have to say that it's James Bond. I want to get into how like the previous two films of this like really intersect. But before we do that, let's do some quick backstory here. So uh, Diamonds Are Forever is released on December 17th, 1971 in North America. It is currently rated 6.6 on IMDb. 
It has a 59 on Metacritic. And on Rotten Tomatoes, from 49 critics, it has 63%. And from 50,000 users, it has a 58%. Uh, It is available on DVD and Blu-ray. You can also buy or rent it on iTunes, uh, also on YouTube. In Canada, there is not a place where you can stream it. Although, uh, if Amazon actually goes through the buying of MGM, maybe very soon, it'll be on your Amazon Prime account. We'll see. Um, Its budget was $7.2 million. 1.2 of that, by the way, was just for Sean Connery's uh, wage. It would go on, though, to make $116 million in 1971, which... Uh, with inflation is is if it had made seven hundred and seventy eight million dollars today. So it was the fifth highest grossing movie of 1971. Its plot description is a diamond smuggling investigation leads James Bond to Las Vegas, where he uncovers an evil plot involving a rich business tycoon. I feel like for the vast majority of this movie, the thing that was really getting to me is like, why is James Bond involved in this anyways? <laughs> like he even says that it's like, why should I care about like this? Uh, like diamond operation and i kind of agreed with him for the fast majority it doesn't feel like a james bond case that you need to concern yourself with uh regardless it stars sean connery as james bond jill st john as tiffany case and charles gray as blofeld i mean we've talked about sean connery here quite a bit do we want to say anything about those other two actors so with sean connery i just an interesting thing you know we talk about his gravitas apparently this was coached uh, by, I can't oh, yeah. remember which director, but someone had to teach him how to eat, stand, walk properly, told him how to speak leading up to the Bond role because he was deemed too uncouth. And it was uh, Alberta Broccoli's wife that really wanted him because he's just so virile. <laughs> it's just funny how sure. he's put together. You know, we do have this presumption that uh, superstars like are born into their personas and it's all bullshit. Mm-hmm. In the Wikipedia, there's a lot of stories about him beating up random people and being tough, which I think is really weird. And it plays yeah. into what uh, Kyle Turner was talking about, male worship. You know, why that's even in his Wikipedia mm. that he like fought gang members in Scotland and got street, street cred. It's who fucking cares? Like, tell me about mm. the movies he's in, but that's, <laughs> that's the whole thing. Um, all right. Jill St. John is pretty interesting in that she's a terrible actress and rude. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> and her link with uh, Lana and Natalie Wood, which is- Oh, how so? So, Lana Wood played uh, the girl that's thrown out the window. She's Natalie mm-hmm. Wood's sister. Oh, Jill okay. St. John grew, grew up with Natalie Wood. She's actually married to Robert Wagner- like the whole thing right. is like this okay, weird okay. little circle. It's kind of like we've been discovering. Seventy one in particular, I think there were a lot less human beings, and uh, Hollywood <laughs> itself is much smaller. Everybody's kind of literally sleeping together sometimes. And, oh, it is know, wild. Like of all, like every backstory we do is like, oh, so everyone like this movie's related to that movie and this movie, and he turned this one down, and they were sleeping together, and this one is too. It's Hollywood was way smaller, I feel, back in the seventies than it is now. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then Lana would. I mean, she didn't really do a lot. She's also real, at least in this film, not really an actress. But she started mm-hmm. off playing, but she's plenty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then sadly, she retired uh, from acting in '82, which I realized was the year after Natalie Wood was uh, not murdered. So, um, yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting there. I just wanted to very briefly mention, so Blofeld is played by Charles Gray, which makes it really weird because he plays an entirely different character in You Only Live Twice. 
<laughs> he plays this like informant that James Bond goes to when he first goes to Japan in that movie. And they're not related whatsoever. They're not supposed to be related. They're just two different characters played by the same actor. The other thing, if you are a uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show fan, is that he opens up that movie. He's like the narrator slash guy who introduces the, the movie. So that is He's also the professor. Might, the professor, right? You know, I would like, if I may, that whole speech that he does at the beginning. Um, yeah. So if you don't know who Charles Gray is, you might know his voice. If you, like me, listen to that album nonstop as a teenager. Um, and it's just a jump to the left. That is correct. <laughs> I actually quite like Jill St. John's performance in this film, um, even though it does not make sense to me that she does not know how to fire a gun um, right. towards the end. Um, but I, I think it's, the, you know, enough of a, a cheeky, sardonic compliment to James Bond's very like straightforward humorlessness. And also what I like about her is that later in her life, she released a cookbook. Yeah, that's the true. Jill St. John cookbook <laughs> in 1987. And actually I like the plenty of tool rule that Lana Wood plays in this film is a nothing role, but I do think it has some interesting significance as far as like James Bond's relationship to American culture. Um, because if you have like, essences or like insinuations of the swinging 60s and maybe a little bit of thunderball or something um there's really not much to be said as far as the swinging 60s and its impact on on bond in um, in an explicit sense at least um plenty o'toole feels like a kind of a weird follow-up to honor majesty's secret service if we're talking somewhat about the context of diamonds are forever because honor majesty's secret service seems to be like the most explicit way of somehow channeling or acknowledging the free love movement and summer of 69 and hippiedom etc etc with the weird psychedelia that occurs in the film there's a lot of um hallucinogens used on her majesty's secret service and then plenty of tools seems like she was part of that generation and that james bond and maybe perhaps the culture at large is in this sort of in-between state of what is going to happen next mm-hmm. after this political and social um, transition. And then she gets thrown to, to a pool. <laughs> That's right. And I mean, drowned yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. This movie, written by Richard Maibaum and Tom Makowitz, based on a novel by Ian Fleming, directed by Guy Hamilton. I'm not going to go into the entire history of uh, Ian Fleming, but he starts writing his James Bond books in 1953 with Casino Royale. By the Early 1960s, Hollywood was interested in adapting this popular series, which by then had grown to be nine novels and six short stories. So the producers, Saltzman and Broccoli, decide to cast Sean Connery eventually. They went through a lot of different choices, but Sean Connery is who they eventually pick, who I think hilariously, if you do read some of the, the criticism at the time of Sean Connery being cast, he was criticized for being too much of a bodybuilder for the role, which is like, like so funny in regards to like modern day (laughs) what our bonds look like he competed in mr universe i know he did but it's like if you can compare him and daniel craig it's like one looks like the hulk versus like a regular person they didn't have hgh though also on on that kyle in comparison to what movie stars look like today james i mean sean connery may have like trimmed down for bond but we can I think we can agree that the Bond movies are horny, whereas like yeah. the contemporary action movies are not horny. They're not they, they don't have like an a sexual ooze to yeah, them. I do not believe anyone in the Marvel films have ever had sex. <laughs> like they, there's like nothing that Thanos. happens in the sex barely any kissing. <laughs> yeah, barely any kissing, like nothing happens in those movies. Um 
basically i'm asking for full penetration in the next marvel film that's what i'm asking for even double <laughs> yeah, why not the first movie that is adapted is dr no released in 1962 to good reviews big box office good movie now, after five films, though, which is like so fast, like there's five films made in, I think, seven years, right? Five, five pine films in seven years. Uh, Sean Connery is kind of tired of this, which I kind of think you can also tell a little bit in You Only Live Twice, where he kind of looks tired through through that movie. But he, he kind of announces in the middle of that filming that I'm retiring from this role. This is going to be my last time playing James Bond. Before we get into like the production of Diamonds and Forever, then let's talk about like his previous one and then the one that comes right before this so and you only live twice it takes it takes place almost entirely in japan and within the fiction he does marry a japanese woman by the name of kissy suzuki um, and in the books by fleming this is the only character who james bond ever has a child with uh, but in the movie series this is the only film she appears in and is never referenced again but he kind of marries this woman it's supposed to be an undercover thing, but he still does. It's also that's the first film, first Bond film, where you see Blofeld's face. So he'd been hinted at in some previous films, but like Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget, you'd only seen like his hand or something like that before. And in You Only Live Twice, it is Donald Pleasance who is portraying Blofeld, uh, gets away at the end. I feel, this is me editorializing a little bit, I feel like that marriage that happens in You Only Live Twice primed them a little bit to try and explore that a little bit more. Because uh, Connery doesn't come back for On Your Majesty's Secret Service, and they eventually cast George Lazenby, an Australian. When producers knew that they needed to recast Bond, they did go searching, and for the first time, looking for a new Bond, they basically still considered like European slash Australian people for it. So it came down to like a couple of English people, an Australian and a Dutchman. Uh, but after seeing a Fry's chocolate cream commercial, they decided to cast George Lazenby. I kind of mentioned this before. They didn't want to get into this situation where they need to recast Bond for like every film. So they tried to get Lazenby to sign this seven picture deal. Which is, I feel like, just a fascinating thing to think of. And to like just stop this backstory for a second. Do, do either of you have an idea, like, if he had signed on for Seven, do you think that the Bond franchise evolves to what it is now? Would it still be around today? More popular, less popular? Like, I know it's, these are impossible questions to answer, but do you have an opinion on that at all? <laughs> That's it's a, such a difficult question to answer. Question. You can't I don't know. He only made one. And it um, is a little bit more hard-boiled, too, than what later ones would be. But, yeah, I don't know. I think the trajectory would have been different tonally because I think most of the Connery films up till Diamonds Are Forever uh, were films that didn't necessarily have house style mm -hmm. um, to me. They were, they, like, hired directors that could, that could do them um, without any significant flourishes, but they also weren't sort of locked into a particular aesthetic in the way that they really are post-Diamonds. And I think because Lazenby was sort of their grab at like a young, cool person, basically, um, there and because Honor Majesty's Secret Service is kind of a weird movie, mm -hmm. um, it's got like some very strange aesthetic choices. Um, and it's got like a lot of hallu hallucination scenes, basically. Yeah. Um, I and, wish I could have rewatched it because I do remember it being like the weirdest one to right. watch when I watched yeah. it a few years ago. I'd say that like the next weird one after that is Spectre as far as its, yeah. priori uh, its desire to prioritize a certain kind of tone and, and visual look 
over like anything else, which is not usually what Bond movies do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think had they stayed with Lazenby, I think that traje- because he's like very much be or they chose him because he seemed to be emblematic of like a later 60s uh, or a late 60s persona or a late 60s um, state of mind in a way that Sean Connery was very clearly um, early boomer. I think it would have possibly gone in a direction where they wouldn't have developed as nondescript a house style as they did. I think they would have been maybe a little, a little bit more willing to play with some of the directorial stuff, a little bit more willing to have maybe a, a slightly more liberal point of view with certain things. Because the Bond films are mostly conservative, in my yeah. opinion. They mostly have like a very conservative outlook on, on the world, even if they are informed by like um, post-colonialism and whatnot. I think you can see in things like Live and Let Die and The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker that they're that that picking Roger Moore, even though he's kind of cartoonish and campy and has like a fluid relationship to his physicality, I think they are ultimately much more conservative films. And Lazenby was sort of their chance at becoming less conservative. Yeah, and my my thing too is this this is not a thing to say that they would have been better for this, but I right. also wonder if they were shooting to do more continuity between the films. Because mm-hmm. for those who might need a refresher, the one interesting thing I do find about On Her Majesty's Secret Service is that Bond isn't as much of a playboy as he would be in other films. Like his he has a love interest for the majority of the film. Uh, Tracy Draco, played by Diana Rigg, who eventually becomes his wife in the movie. He marries her. He falls in love. Um, and at the very end, Blofeld sends a car, shoots up the car, kills his wife. And the movie ends with him cradling her as she dies in his arms, which is why at the beginning of this movie, mm-hmm. he's on a mission to get Blofeld. And I feel that that would have been even more thematically resonant had it been the same actor who was going after Blofeld. That's interesting. I don't know if they would have continued with the linearity. I like there are definitely like some narrative connections in in the um Connery films, but I think I think they would have kept mostly the like self-contained and anth- anthological aspects. But maybe you're right, maybe maybe they would have like tried to do like the whole cycle thing that they're doing with with Daniel Craig, Craig. right now. Well, I, I, the only reason I say that and I couldn't I didn't. I will admit I didn't do like a huge deep dive. Apparently, like they had this movie, Diamonds Are Forever, basically written already. And then when Lazenby didn't come back and they recast uh, uh, Connery back in the role, they had to basically do a rewrite from page one. So I feel there was something that they were probably going for. But mm-hmm. yeah, the only thought I have is about the social construct around Bond films. Would they even allow a spy superhero? to go too far to the left. You know, we do mm. know that there's mm. so much political influence in creating films. And I can't mm-hmm. imagine, you know, in the 70s, you know, the Broccoli's being allowed to have sort of a, a liberal or civic civil rights aware hero. It just doesn't work with creating a superhero for the West. I, I, I think that there would have been a strong limit. Right. And I don't know how much they could have grown in it. I'm not sure. Right. I mean, I, I mean, I don't mean to suggest that they would have become like bleeding heart 
that the Bond films would would have become bleeding heart liberal movies by any means. But I I think because it is so tied up in a more conservative British ethos that because of certain influence, I, I think certain American influences in the in the culture in Honor Majesty's Secret Service that they're like tiptoeing towards center, uh, basically. Had they kept Lazenby, the Green New Deal would have been signed already, well, is yes, what we're trying yeah, to say. That's so. what we're saying. Yeah. You know, it's, <laughs> I just had this thought. James Bond for Bernie. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I read uh, that this one of the writers is brought in for the American tone, but that was also yeah. in, an eff- uh, in an effort to bring Connery back. And knowing a little bit of that British culture, even though we get this tonal thing about how they communicate it, is a lot more both liberal and sort of anti-establishment in its nature um, it would be an interesting, actually, if this thing had never shifted to an American focus, maybe it would have been, mm. you know, developed into a much wider gamut of storylines. Because England in the 70s and 80s, they have that exterior framework of being so trying to retain its poshness. But, you know, they they start the punk movement and the zines and the mm-hmm. fucking counterculture stuff. It would have been, uh, been interesting, actually, if uh, Hollywood had never sunk its teeth into this franchise. Maybe Bond would have been... Uh, yeah, gone the other way. Started murdering uh, world leaders because uh, you know, <laughs> Maybe. fuck the man. Here for it. So yeah, we're like partway through on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Lazenby announces that he is also not going to continue with Bond. So Kyle, you were mentioning that this is he was basically fired. I don't know if you have any other <laughs> additions to that or things I to don't, fill in. Not that I would feel um, safe saying without um, citing. Um, I will have to leave it at, I believe it was like kind of a mutual parting of the way. Yeah, it's, it feels like he didn't really want to continue and producers were like more than willing. Like, yeah, that's fine. You can yeah. go. Mm-hmm. I was hoping you'd want to leave this podcast by now. He's not coming back. Producers then go on a search again. This time they ask a few people. One, they ask Michael Gambon. Uh, he says he was too fat. So he says, I'm not going to do the role. I'm too fat. And then they try and go the American route because they ask Adam West. Burt Reynolds and Clint Eastwood all to become the new James Bond. Adam West would have been amazing. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, all three of them said the exact same thing, though, which I feel is interesting, where they said, no, like Bond has to be British. There, we, we could not be cast in the James Bond role. So then these producers, like the Saltzmans and Broccoli's, they're left in a quandary. Who should play the next Bond? And then they decided, why not the old Bond? Uh, so they piled a dump truck full of money and backed it up onto Sean Connery's front yard and dumped $1.25 million onto his front lawn. That's a real story. It's not. But um, an unheard of sum of money, really, at that point. Like, it was a very high paycheck he got to to make this. They then decided to bring back some of the elements that had made kind of Goldfinger such a huge success. So same writers, same director, and they even brought Shirley Bassey back for the theme song. I know, Dave, you are a huge fan of the theme song at the I very love this least. Theme song. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the theme song's yeah. great. Yeah, it's great. Such a waste. Uh, who, who, <laughs> who, I mean, I feel about that in some uh, some of the other films. Like, this is a great opening song on a movie that's not very good. You said you said that there's a, a, a cover of that song by some singer? Yeah, you know, I was, uh, I'm probably mistaken. So, I thought Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings did a cover of this, but I think actually it's uh, like a, a DJ that actually sampled this song that I'm recalling. Oh, gotcha. Because, uh, yeah, after you said you couldn't find it, I was Googling and I'm like, yeah, I'm probably wrong. I mean, I love Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, but uh, I think the rendition I was hearing was uh, 
you know, back in the day when you had these old uh, underground CDs, mm-hmm. compact discs, and these, uh, what was then called triple Tell, me, tell me more about this obsolete technology, Dave. <laughs> Wait, what's a CD? Uh, So, there's this uh, genre, it's called trip hop that preceded all of this uh, stuff Mm -hmm. we're listening today and I was really into that. So, probably like somewhere there. I don't know what, but uh, I love this song. I mean, you have Kanye sampling Diamonds for Diamonds from Sierra Leone, That's right. right. That's right. Oh, he did? I don't, I, yeah. He scares me. (laughs) (laughs) He scares a lot of people. Um... Uh, Kyle, it's funny you should use the um, dump truck analogy because Albert R. Cubby Broccoli, one of the producers, is like, his family created broccoli. By, yeah, by, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they precede so, broccoli. Yeah, yeah they yeah. Crea- literally created broccoli and they dumped broccoli on Reagan's front lawn. That's right. When that's he right. said that he did not like broccoli. <laughs> I feel the same thing probably happened for, is it Live and Let Die? No. No Time to Die. No Time to Die is the latest one that's going to be coming out. Because I felt like he was very upfront by saying, like, I do not want to do another Bond film. And then he came back for one more Bond film. Because we'll he contracted for five. Yeah. So this, is, this, this would be his fifth one, right? Yeah. yeah. Fifth one. He, he wanted to exit, but they, I don't think they would let him out of his contract. Right. They didn't let him lazenby it. So, well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. As far as the writers go, Richard Maybaum had helped to write Dr. No and the first few Bond films before taking a bit of a break. This was his return to the franchise, and he would go on to write for Bond up until License to Kill in 1989. He basically wrote most of them, or helped to write most of them going forward. Makowitz would stick around until the mid-70s on Bond, and it would transition to more of TV work, it feels like. Uh, Guy Hamilton... Uh, had directed Goldfinger, he'd also go on to direct the next two Bond films featuring Roger Moore. And at this point, he was kind of known outside of Goldfinger as a director of kind of thrillers and semi-horror films. There's some really interesting titles if you go and look at his IMDb page. I will say that this movie was generally well-reviewed at the time of its release and was, of course, seen by a lot of people. But now it's considered by many to be like one of the worst of the Connery films um, and basically like a lower tier of the franchise in general. It was nominated for one Oscar for best sound, uh, but it lost to Fiddler on the Roof. So that is the legacy of Diamonds Are Forever. I'll just put in a quip here for Guy Hamilton. Apparently he was offered Superman and he turned that down, thankfully. Mm-hmm. And he was offered Batman, like the Tim Burton Batman. The 89 Batman. Yep. Wow. And he turned that down too. So we dodged two huge bullets because those are classics and this is a piece of shit. Okay. Well, there we go. Um, uh, Kyle, I want you to maybe just um, expand on your point a little bit. Like, I, I know that this is, I, and I will agree, like mostly a boring film. But what are some of those interesting bits that you noticed about it? Um, so you mentioned earlier about how Diamonds Are Forever feels like a film that is trying to figure out what a James Bond movie is in a landscape where there are lots of James Bond ripoffs and parodies. And I think that's really interesting you said that because... Its most interesting parts are about the imposter switching of identities. Mm. You have Blofeld, who is serving as an imposter for Willard White, the real estate magnate. You have multiple Blofelds. You have Jane, you have Sean Connery literally literally returning to the role of James Bond after someone else has already paid Bond before him. And she, you have this film that is constantly trying to figure out what is what is its identity and what 
is James Bond's identity. And it becomes somewhat of a, a weird simulacrum, I think. There are the mm-hmm. many faces of what Bond can be, and it doesn't know how to choose them. Um, and I wish that that had been the focus of the film, honestly, because um, having this this figure that has, in a fairly short amount of time, become kind of a cultural icon and also can be recognized as being able to be interchangeable and being able to be sort of uh, an idea of a character mm-hmm. rather than one single person or one um, or connected to one single person, I think is uh, quite fascinating. But it never stays with that. I think it basically drops that aspect of the storyline like 45 minutes in. What, what is interesting is in the previous film on your majesty's secret service with lazenby they were not afraid to like break the fourth wall like one of the first things lazenby does is he like i remember him literally turning to the camera and being like that didn't happen to the other guy and it's Mm -hmm. like okay like i get what you're doing but um (laughs) uh you would think that they would even lean into that a little bit here of being like hey it's obvious that sean connery is returning so um let's play around with this idea of identities being faked and new people coming out here or even like james bond changing his face to look like sean connery or something Mm. to explain why he's coming back in the first place um i don't know dave do you have anything to say about that i don't know that's uh great observations i mean even with the whatever the main female lead's name is she's opening up and she's a different character every time she opens the Mm -hmm. right the shutters or whatever you call that door sliding door um but even that like you said uh kyle kyle turner it disappears less than halfway through the film and she ends up i don't know but this is not really in this tone it's just poor writing how she keeps flipping her allegiances back and forth but it's not done in a careful or a thought out way. So it doesn't, it, it is a world of missed opportunities. I mean, they even had two cats. I mean, there's clearly mm-hmm. an awareness that they could have run with this. And I don't know if it's fear or there's too many rewrites or whatever it is that stopped them from kind of leaning into it. And yeah, the trope that there has to be a doomsday device and there has to be some mm-hmm. something exploding. There has to be, you know, they have this checklist that makes a Bond film. Those little nuances that you brought up are my favorite parts. The opening sequence, mm. the double uh, blow-filled reveal, you know, some of those little things. And then some of the fight scenes, as cheesy as they are, because they get this like that old school action feeling. Mm. Um, and everything in, in between is garbage. I, I couldn't even understand yeah. why they did the underground lab. I mean, they were making the satellite, but the moon landing thing is so random. Yeah. The toy car, I couldn't. I couldn't get into it. I feel like there's a version of the film where the moon landing does make sense because if like you have multiple people being James Bond and also being Blofeld and Tiffany Case switching I- and I- her identity and whatnot and James Bond air quotes dying in the film, there's this like fun sort of artificiality of identity and, and whatnot and having the moon landing thing being artificial I think is Potential fun, but again, like as you were saying, they don't really do anything with it. it. There's no consistency. It doesn't feel fleshed out. It doesn't feel like they've committed to that aspect. There is, however, like a very good um essay I uh, want to direct y'all to and, and listeners to about Diamonds Are Forever being the surrealist Bond film, and mm-hmm. it's on Brightwall Dark Room. It's written by Kent W. Wilhelm. Okay, Kent cool. H. Wilhelm. I just had this one rewrite thought recasting. If uh whose identity does he take again if that guy they had brought in like a george lazenby lookalike that you know and they <laughs> right. do that whole identity switch that would have made this movie perfect because you 
you know, <laughs> then you can go back to Honor Majesty's Secret Service and be like, was that even Bond? You know, and and <laughs> right, you could have, right. uh, there was such a simple nuance, never mind having to write a proper script. But who's the real David? That's a real question. I, the one element I wanted to bring up, and I think this is going to be the recurring thing in this episode. I don't think it's really like explored particularly in depth or well. It is interesting that they're exploring even the idea of blood diamonds in, inside of this movie. Like they are at least acknowledging the fact, like, hey, we're exploiting this third world country for its diamond share. And then we kind of get into like the high, like high drama of like explosions and like satellites and stuff like that. But the problem, Kyle, is these are not new things. They're just no. stories that have come out in more recent times because. I mean, you guys are talking about the democratization of uh, celebrity status and the use of social media for, you know, common uh, information. Everybody in that era would have known that's at that, like whoever's involved in that industry, that none of these materials come from uh, good places. I mean, even the concept of a diamond and its value is totally arbitrary and uh, designed by an industry to inflate its own wealth. So, I don't know. It, I don't think I think they took it lightly because they took it lightly. They didn't even give a shit. They were taking advantage of all these people at the ground level. They were blaming them for theft. That's how the narrative was going. I do think that that aspect of the plot, which again is sort of picked up and and discarded very very quickly, it does play into um, the Bond franchise's very very weird racial politics often inconsistent often often just racist but like having those scenes and then the very racist um black woman turning into a gorilla there's something very unsettling about that um as if the earlier kind of proto uncut gems narrative is supposed to forgive the that second part Again, another version of this film is it involves like a, a slightly deeper interrogation of like Bond, Bond and the U.S.'s and um, Britain's relationship to blood diamonds, et cetera, et cetera. Dave, I, I remember you texting me, which is weird because we're sitting on the couch beside each other. But you texted me that you felt that there was a lot of precedence in these some of these Connery films that are brought back into the Daniel Craig films. I don't know if you could elaborate a little bit on that. I am loosely aware that the full reboot uh, performed for the Daniel Craig series is in fact like a general reboot of all of these stories. So it is fascinating, like a lot of these action sequences, watching Dr. No, like there's an intentional tonality they want to pull out all of the... um masculine aspects of Connery's Bond, strip away any of the humor and make it into this like action franchise. And so, there are like fight sequences that have almost, I don't know, shot for shot, but they're essentially choreographed the same way. There's uh, some of the the gags. I don't know. There was just something, I feel like like even the part where he's uh, going up the elevator after the scene reminded me of the scene in, I think in Skyfall where they're following him going up this glass elevator and there's just all these little mm. visual nuances that I was like, oh, they've used this before. And I've seen this in this other Bond film. Uh, but I mean, to Kyle Turner's point, I mean, there's a, a developing trope after this film to shoot them essentially in the same way so that we're mm-hmm. uh, ready to expect what to happen. Um, but for whatever reason, I didn't feel that way when we watched, uh, which one do we watch together? Tomorrow Never Dies? No. Yes. You know, Golden Eyes was my exception for 
Remington Steele. And then Timothy Dalton uh, <laughs> movies, I don't think followed this trope as much, but I could be wrong. Uh, but Daniel Craig's the one in my mind because we've watched them so recently. So, um, mm. they feel visually very similar. I, I can't really yeah. tell you exactly. It's kind of like when we watched Harold and Maude and I was thinking of Wes Anderson. I mean, does, that director doesn't shoot it like Wes Anderson, but there's this uh, there's something earthy there, yeah. feel where like they clearly influence each other. Yeah, that's I, it. I, mm. I'm actually so interested on whoever is the successor to Daniel Craig if they do a reset of the visual style again, or they just continue on with what they're doing, mm-hmm. we'll find out in probably five or six years from now. Cause that seems to be how long it takes between these films nowadays. My thing that I think is kind of unique in the bond franchise though, that somewhat shocks me as we see all of like these reboots, prequels, side quills, however you want to like define them is that they always feel compelled that they need to bring in like previous characters and stuff like that. The, the biggest example I can think of is like uh, the Star Trek Into Darkness, where they basically have to redo the Wrath of Khan storyline again. Um, instead of, but in with the exception of, and sorry, spoiler alert, but with the exception of Blofeld coming back in the Daniel Craig films, like they haven't tried to do like here's another Goldfinger, here's another Doctor No, here's another this person. It's all been kind of new characters. <laughs> okay, on that, yeah, I think. My suspicion is, I don't know if it's been confirmed, and I don't really want it confirmed until I see the movie, but Rami Malek's character in No Time to Die wears Japanese no masks, Mm. Dr. No. Look at that. Maybe maybe I'm going to have to eat my words here when when that (laughs) gets released. I mean, uh, it wouldn't be surprising. I mean, the way that they're building the Daniel Craig universe, that they want to retell the story. I just found out what's the... uh, there's another Connery film that I didn't realize. Oh, the, the off. What's, what's the one yeah, he did? I Never Say Never Again. That's a remake Ugh. of uh, Thunderball. Thunderball, right? Yeah. yeah. But mm-hmm. like, that kind well, of stuff yeah, is fascinating. If you, if you want to go down a huge rabbit hole, look at like the legal battles of Thunderball because that's actually more <laughs> oh, yeah. it, that's more interesting than what the film is. <laughs> yeah. And how that even but got it, made. The film's directed by Irving Kirshner who um, did Empire Strikes Back and yeah. The Eyes of Laura Mars. <laughs> Yeah. So, and the film is, I'm sorry, the score is by Michelle Legrand, who did the music for The Umbrellas of Sherberg. Wow. I mean, Dave, if we ever do 1983, we'll talk about Never Say Never Again. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we have no say over what, what year we get to do. No, so. it's just the machine. I enjoy having you two as my little playthings. Yeah, that's right. Um, Felix Leiter, which is a character that exists in the books, is the American version. Um, even appears in the Daniel Craig movies. Uh, I feel like this is like his biggest role in any of the movies. I don't know if there's another counterexample, but he's he's in this a lot in, in this mm. edition. So it, I think that is, again, as we've kind of been mentioning, a way to bring in the American audience. Like, hey, here's an American who's also a spy and, you know, mm-hmm. a, 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 the same as James Bond sort of thing. Uh, so it's interesting that he has such a big role in this in this film. The other thing is that I believe this is also the first time you could even say that Bond swears, quote unquote. He says <laughs> bitch, but I mean, like, not the most harshest of, of swear words, but definitely, a, again, a departure from the previous films. So you can see that they're kind of working with how much edge they can give the Bond character. I was clutching my pearls. I know. Did you I feel, almost fainted. Uh, I mean, I haven't watched these as much as you both have, but is this the movie where he's most aggressively violent with women? Uh, I was surprised with the opening sequence that he strangled uh, right. whatever that bikini lady was doing and he strikes yeah. Uh, yeah. the other woman in the face yeah, to shut her answer, up. Yeah. And 
That's a, I was kind of taken aback a bit. It's the one where Connery, I think, is most violent towards women. I think Roger Moore has his moments, especially in The Men with the Golden uh, Gun. Right. And maybe a little bit of A View to a Kill. Yeah. I don't remember. In the very final scene, and he Blofeld is leading uh, Bond around, in the background, there's a sign that says, like, if in doubt, ask. Which feels like, oh, it's a very like uh, you know forward thinking uh, workplace. It's good that you know, they they encourage people to speak out if they see something wrong that's going on. So good on Blofeld for having a great inclusive workplace. Just imagine Blofeld using all that corporate jargon. I want you to feel empowered <laughs> to ask. Here we're a family, okay? So yeah. <laughs> we need to pivot. It's a good time yeah. to pivot. Let's circle back on this later. <laughs> what was? Uh, what was your guys' feelings about uh, the scientist? I didn't understand why a so-called pacifist. I mean, I don't know if this is supposed to be a, a comment on you know World War II, World War One, or the involvement of uh, physicists in the you know uh, creation of weapons of mass destruction. But th- it got so confusing, like having this scientist, and then they describe him as this peace-loving person, and then all of a sudden they're blowing up everything and he has regrets at the end honestly Dave, I'm, I'm actually glad you brought this up because i think there there is probably something going on in the early 70s that people are grappling with that idea between like action and pacifism and, and that sort of thing because that is essentially the whole subplot of billy jack that we watched already right. too that's right <laughs> right it's like can you be pacifist in a in an awful society yeah. um and i think no you flirting with that yeah. It's like basically that's face. yeah, basically that's what their thing is like. No, you absolutely can't. Um, and in this one, um, I don't know. I don't know what their actual end commentary right. is. And we're on still that, in the midst, and we're still in the midst of Vietnam. Yes, true. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's it's confusing. Also, why did they bring like Oldsmobile cars into the desert to chase the space mobile, only to have the <laughs> ATVs come later? You know, like I I will say. Uh, I agree with the car chase on Las Vegas. I don't think it's very good. I will be the defender of the moon buggy sequence, which I think is actually pretty funny. I like him driving through the I sets, and I think I think it's great. <laughs> uh, also, I will say, marks on continuity, because I don't think every film would think to do this. But when Bond comes down on like that weird little motorcycle thing, and he throws it to the left, and then they peel out in the... You can actually see that that thing in the ditch. <laughs> um, well, still, it's like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> they actually thought to actually put that over there I'll, as he drives I'll off. I'll counter that with the stupid yeah. car chase scene where he elevates the car one way into the into yeah. the alley, and they end up coming out on the opposite side of the sure. car. So somehow, in the middle of this alleyway, he's somehow able to turn the car over onto the left side mm-hmm. of the vehicle. It's dumb. <laughs> At the very least, it doesn't do that thing in the one Roger Moore film where he's in the American South and they use a slide whistle as he jumps the boat <laughs> over something. And it's always such a weird scene. Like, Maybe we just thing need, as he jumps over something. Just need it's more weird. More side whistles. Slide whistles. We need more slide whistles. Yes. Everything should be a slide whistle. We're done here. All right. So the machine has said we need to, to wrap things up. So I do think we need to get to some critics choice. As we've been doing this season, we're looking at primarily two critics. Um, my little like uh, asterisk I always put here, I'm not saying that these are the two best critics, most important critics, but they're the ones that are the easiest to find reviews from. So that is what I'm doing. <laughs> they generally which is, line uh, up with our opinions. So it's correct. Perfect. So it's Roger Ebert and Pauline Kale who we're going to be talking about here uh, today. And weirdly enough, they kind of agree. 
I will say on, on this film where they're both kind of positive on it. So they're not going to agree with you 100% here, Dave. So Roger Ebert wrote in part, in Diamonds Are Forever, Bond finds himself driving a moon buggy and Tenai are wildly revolving and robot arms flapping while being chased across a desert. Never mind why. The buggy looks comical, but Connery does not. He is completely at home, as we know by now, with every form of transportation. Later, after outsmarting five Las Vegas squad cars in a lovely chase scene, I don't agree with that, but he nonchalantly flips his Mustang up on two wheels to elude the sixth. But not a sign of a smile. There is an exhilaration in the way he does it, even more than in the stunt itself. The plot of Diamonds Are Forever is as complicated as possible. That's necessary in order to have somebody left after nine dozen bad guys have been killed. It has been claimed that the plot is too complicated to describe, but I think I could if I wanted to. I can't imagine why anyone would want to, though. The point in a Bond adventure is the moment, the surface, what's happening now. The less time wasted on plot, the better. So that is that was his interpretation of his uh, somewhat positive review of Diamonds Are Forever. I, I I mean I agree with that perspective. And that plot is doesn't really matter. It's just that what is there in lieu of plot is not interesting to me. I that is I think the, the part that I agree with. I think that most Bond films, even in the Daniel Craig ones, like I care about like the locations they're going to, the costumes yeah. they're putting, the production designs. Like I don't really care what's happening in the movie to be perfectly frank. I just want something cool to be happening on screen. Right. But the plot can't take away as dumb as it is. It can't right. take away right, right, from right. your being centered in that world, you know? Right. And that's right. the right. problem with this movie. Paul and Kale, I'm I'm doing a a fairly lengthy part of this, but I thought there's some good things she brought up. So uh, Diamonds Are Forever starts with a full head of steam and one expects a luxuriant, mock sadistic good time. But a few minutes later, Sean Connery as Bond and a villain are in a tiny elevator lunging at each other and pounding at each other with excruciatingly amplified blows. The sequence goes on and on and the movie loses its insolent cool. The picture isn't bad, it's merely tired and it's often noisy when it means to be exciting. Guy Hamilton directs more or less adequately but he isn't precise enough for nonchalance, for the right, perfectly careless throwaway joke tone. Hamilton doesn't parry urbanity and flippancy because he's still struggling to achieve them. What's missing may be linked to the absence of Peter Hunt, who worked on the action sequences of all the earlier Bond films and who directed the last one. Perhaps it was he who gave the series its distinctive quality of aestheticized thrills. The daring seemed beautiful in the early films, precariously glorified. This time, even when a sequence works that is both daring and funny, such as the car chase and the battle between Connery and the black and white Amazons, it lacks elegance and visual opulence. It looks like sequences of the same kind in Bond imitations. No, d- no doubt those of us who love the Bond pictures are spoiled, but really, we've come to expect more than a comic car chase. Customers may, however, be happy enough with what they get. Diamonds Are Forever has opened just at the moment when people long for the familiar, stable, unalienated hero with a capacity for enjoyment. The timing could not be better for Sean Connery to come back as Bond. He no longer wears the waxy deadpan of a sex fantasy stud dummy. Over the years, he has turned the robot matinee idol Bond into a man himself. The foppery and gadgetry have diminished and the sexual conquests too, almost imperceptibly. Bond has lost his upper class snobbery along with the toiletries. It's as if the snotty enigmatic Bond disgusted Connery. His instinct was right. It's better this way because Connery's mock heroic presence incarnates the appeal of the series. Bond doesn't seem phony anymore. That was her, her point of view. The biggest one there is I do agree is like 
cue and, and, and those type of tropes that we know notice in Bond films um, aren't as pronounced in this movie, I wouldn't say. Like, still, there's the gadgets and stuff, but they're not like, let's take a 15-minute <laughs> segue over here to see all the gadgets that Bond is going to get this go-around. I think our note of the upper-class snobbery as being some sort of, like, artifice or fakery is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, I like the sort of stripped-away version of James Bond, but I also think that that foppery and that um, attention to accessory and design is what makes Bond interesting, this being in like an aestheticized male superhero, basically. Yeah, it, it does seem that there's always a bit of this... Um we were teeter-totter effect, right? Because right. Uh, Pierce Brosnan got into like that Roger Moriness, I find, by his later films. And then it was like, mm-hmm. we're going to do a huge reset and go back to like stripped away Bond here again. Um, mm-hmm. Which like bummed out Daniel Craig because he kind of wanted to do that. <laughs> he wanted to be that type of James Bond. It was like, no, you're going to be like this type, this um, bare knuckle boxer type guy. So I wonder if it will like flip back again the other way, whoever gets to play him next. Mm-hmm. I feel like when they did their meetings for Daniel Craig, they had read this review and they were like, we need a Bond <laughs> right, right. who's debonair but hates being so. And they got the backstory <laughs> of Bond uh, right, right. that's prevalent in all of his movies where he, he knows what an Omega mm-hmm. watch is, but he also hates right, that he knows right. it. So I love self-loathing. <laughs> <laughs> I really want that t-shirt. I love self-loathing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right. Well, I mean, that is what uh, myself, Dave, and Kyle thought. Uh, but what do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page. That's letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode, and you can support for as low as $1 per month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Something you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Uh, so let's get to the rating of this movie. Um, again, we have a guest. So Kyle, I do want to know what you would rate this movie out of five, even though it does really not impact uh, our ratings at all. But what would you give for this movie out of five? I would probably give it like a two. Hmm. I would give it a two. Dave, would you go higher or lower? No, I, I think a two is okay. I was debating going lower, but you know there are moments where it's actually fun to watch because Bond films are supposed to just be fun. It's just such a drag in the middle. So, right. Yeah. One one and a half stars of those two stars is for Shirley Bassey's. Yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, it is really good. <laughs> what about you, Kyle? It's, it's, honestly, that's kind of I'm. I don't know. This is going to make me so basic, but it's kind of how I feel about "Live and Let Die" because I like that that's song a, a lot. Song, but yeah. I hate that song. We're, we're ready to get upset. Let's go. Four? Oh <laughs> no! I, th- I think I think no. I'm not going to give this movie a four. Uh, you're going to probably be more surprised than me because we fought a lot over text message last night. So you, you probably thought I was going to rate this way higher. I'm going to be a two point five. Um, like I said, like I oh. I don't think this is like um a phenomenal movie, but it's it's one of those things that I think it leans more into stuff that I like than I dislike. But it's also mm. ultimately something that I forgot that I watched <laughs> last night too. <laughs> like I'm going to probably rewatch this again in like ten years and be like, oh yeah, that thing happens in this movie. I forgot <laughs> completely about this. Uh, so that is going to average to 2.25, although rounded down to two. Dave, uh, 
boy, the, the two very not similar movies this ties with, which is Nicholas and Alexandra and Bedknobs and Broomsticks. So <laughs> would you Shit. put that above those two in between or at the bottom? I don't know. I personally, th- this is my pitch to you. I don't know. I, I kind of feel like it should go above both of them personally, but I feel it's yeah. more, even though I just finished saying that it's not memorable, I do think they're, it's actually more memorable than, than either of those two. Yeah. Now that I rewatched them. I don't know. I, I, I'm okay with either way. I will at least commit to saying I will not watch any three of these movies ever again. Um, <laughs> so where sure, they sure. order up. The only, I mean, it's like, it's the same thing. I was just going to say, this movie has memorable little sequences and then Rasputin, what's his name? Tom, uh, um, Tom Baker. Baker. Tom Baker. Tom Baker's so good in that movie, except the movie itself is such a grind. So, I, I don't know. Yeah. Throw it wherever you like. Do a dartboard. <laughs> put them all in the middle. And we don't have to think about it again. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, that means then um, entering our list at the new... At the new number 15 position is going to be Diamonds Are Forever. All right, we probably should check out to see what we are going to be talking about here next week. Let me just push this button here. Oh, you know, I feel like this might be the start of a bunch of Westerns we have to watch, Dave, because the Western was still kind of in its last throes of being relevant in the early 70s. So next week, we're going to be talking about McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Nope, nothing. Do you have any strong opinions on Robert Altman, Kyle? <laughs> I like Robert Altman. Yeah. I, I love Gosford Park. Yeah. love The Player. I love Three Women. Yeah. I like when Robert Altman is weird. Yeah, I like too. when when he's weirder. But I've never seen McCabe and Mrs. Miller. So that I, I should put that on my list to, to prepare to listen to the episode. Yeah, McCabe perfect. All right. Well, can't be worse uh, yeah, than uh, Bedknobs and Broomsticks. <laughs> you wouldn't think um i uh yeah i'm actually excited to watch it it's one of those few that i haven't seen i've seen a bunch of the 70s altman films so weirdly this is one of the ones i have not watched here before so i'm excited to jump into it we, we get to talk about warren Beatty, dave does that make you excited we get to uh, talk about warren Beatty. oh yeah he's still young yeah that'd be good the the person who became a film star who never wanted to become a film star his he's a fascinating person even if you don't like his movies i don't like anything uh well kyle thank you so much for joining us if people wanted to like stay in contact with you see what you're up to what are some ways they can do so online thank you so much for having me i had such a good time joining you again um always always fun to debate and and talk about bond um and other movies but um you can find me on twitter and instagram at tyle kerner t-y-l-e-k-u-r-n-e-r it's just spoonerism of my name because i'm very creative Excellent. Perfect. I asked Dave this at the beginning of the episode. I'm going to ask you this. Have you ever bought a diamond? No. Okay. No. No. <laughs> Have you ever received? I had to think about it because I, I bought my mother ages ago. Um, she's a big Lord of the Rings fan. Mm. Um, and I bought her the, Ev- the Even Star, nice. the necklace that Arwen wears. And I don't know if it was a real diamond. I'm probably going to say no. <laughs> but I have no idea. <laughs> I enjoy having you to as my little playthings.